Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. If you look at overall the different studies that are out there, the number of children who have severe disease from COVID-19 fortunately has been really low. But what should a parent do if their child participates in sports? Is it safe to play? Mayo Clinic experts share their thoughts. Of all ages, boys, girls, those with disabilities, those without disabilities, people from all backgrounds have the potential to benefit from sports. COVID and sports is something we need to be still learning about and each person needs to make their own decision. Here is Dr. Angela Madkey, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic's Children's Center and host of Ask the Mayo Mom. There are many benefits to sports participation for children and adolescents. However, during the COVID-19 pandemic, activities such as youth sports have been put on hold or modified to decrease the COVID-19 spread. Additionally, the scientific community has learned more about when it's safe to return to sports participation following COVID-19 infection. Today, we're gonna to be talking about sports participation during the COVID-19 pandemic and what you need to know about return to sports after COVID-19 infection. Joining us for this discussion are two physicians who've been working closely on this topic during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our first guest is Dr. David Soma, a pediatrician and pediatric sports medicine physician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Soma is also the chair of clinical practice within the Division of Community Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. Our second guest is Dr. Tala Niaz, a pediatric cardiologist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. So Dr. Soma, welcome back. Dr. Niaz, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dr. Mackey, for having me. Always fun to join. Yeah, Thanks. this is going to be a good discussion. Thanks, Dr. Mackey. This is an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, well, I'm so thankful to have you here. I know you guys have been working a lot um, within Mayo Clinic and within the global community um, in the United States about sports participation during COVID-19. So I think we're really, really lucky to have you guys share your knowledge today. So there's been a lot of discussion about sports participation, you know, a lot of people for it, people against it, and a lot of concerns, but I think we need to start with the basics. Let's just understand why sports are, are really important for kids and what do they learn? What are the benefits during of sports participation? Uh, I think you ask a really dangerous first question for me um, because <laughs> you know I absolutely love sports and yep. um, I'm as big of an advocate for them as anyone. So I think you know, I could go on and on and spend the whole time talking today just about the benefits of sports, but I'll try to break it down a little bit more simply for everyone. Um, you know, kids of all ages, boys, girls, those with disabilities, those without disabilities, people from all backgrounds have the potential to benefit from sports. And I typically try to break down the benefits into both kind of a short-term and then a long-term benefit. In the short-term, there's things like children who participate in sports are one-tenth as likely to be as obese, they have improved academics in the classroom. They're less likely to smoke, do drugs, have teen pregnancy. And there's many, many more physical, social, emotional, and academic benefits that occur, you know, just being involved in sports during the time you have them. But there's also long-term benefits. So there's things like um, those who go to do high school or team sports growing up are more likely to attend college. They achieve higher incomes later in life compared to those who don't do sports. They're more productive in their jobs later on in life. And then later on in life, they're lower risk of cardiovascular disease and children of those who were in sports are more likely to pass that activity onto their children. So the benefits are not just in the short term, they can last a long time, they're so valuable. And I can say personally, and you know, Dr. Mackey, you were an athlete as well, that I don't know if I would be where I'm at today with all the many lessons and benefits that sports provided me personally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I, I agree so much. And you know, I look back like on my high school and collegiate sports participation and it's, just invaluable. And not only that, just the life um, connections you make um, with friends and, um, and, and uh, you know, classmates and other things are, are incredibly valuable. 
But I think the bigger question is, is sports participation during the COVID-19 pandemic safe? So I know that's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for answering it in yeah. advance. <laughs> Another great but difficult question that could go on for hours, but um, there really isn't a yes or no answer here. Um, you know, I, I think that it, there's so many variables at play. Um, sports are probably safer when the numbers of COVID are lower in your community. Certain sports are lower risk than others the individual risk factors or health conditions of the family or the people in their household are all things that I think we would need to consider. But I tell people that the moment you leave your house, there's no such thing as zero risk. And so I think a lot of times we're trying to think about minimizing the risk versus saying that it's absolutely zero. And so I think, you know, we really can't just say sports are or are not safe during a pandemic. It's really trying to think about how Everyone, anytime you make a medical decision, you got to weigh the risks and the benefits for each individual and make, you know, kind of a decision. And, and I can say personally, you know, I, I'm obviously very involved in the community in sports and I have coached three sports personally since the start of the pandemic. I coached my son's baseball team, two flag football teams and my current son's basketball team. And each of those sports have been during different times of the pandemic with different risk factors, some being indoor sports, some being outdoor, and then also just you know, the, the, the emotions of people are, are variable. So I think there's a lot of different things to consider. And, and I really think it's an individual uh, decision for each family. How do you have the time to be a pediatrician, a sports medicine physician, a parent, a, a coach, Dave, Dr. Soma, you, I don't know how you do this all. I have a great family and supporting wife. I will tell you that. So <laughs> You do have a very supportive wife. I agree. Um, so let's let's. You said certain sports are going to be at higher risk. Um, can you kind of break down kind of lower risk sports participation versus maybe ones that would be higher risk? Yeah, absolutely. So um, higher risk sports are typically ones that are indoor compared to outdoor. Those that require close contact and those where there's more difficulty wearing a mask or providing social distancing or, or other factors. Um, in lower risk sports, um, those are ones where you can be outside, obviously not be in close contact, wear a mask, use hand hygiene, minimize sharing of equipment and all those different factors. Um, the Minnesota Department of Health and other groups have published some of this data looking at kind of what sports are higher risk than others. And the most recent data that I could see that kind of looked at information from January uh, or June through January, so it kind of brought roughly a six month window, they showed the total number of cases in each sport. So remember, this isn't a rate because it's not looking at, there's a, if you have a lot of people playing a sport, there's gonna be inherently more people doing it, but they showed that hockey, volleyball, basketball, and football had the largest numbers. Again, they also have to be considered what sports were in season during that six month window and what are the rates, but some commonalities in those sports are that they are typically ones that are indoor, except for football, um, or they're ones where there really is close contact. So again, I think it just reemphasizes that key message that you know, contact, um, indoors, sharing of equipment, not being able to wear a mask, all are things that are higher risk. Okay, so what is the, the you mentioned a couple things you can do, do to reduce transmission. Do, can you just kind of elaborate those for families that are having children participate at this time? Yep, I think it all starts off before you even leave the house. Mm -hmm. um, if you feel that your child is not acting well, um, they've got a fever, cough, new symptom, something's not right, it's not worth the risk to spread that to the team or others. Um, and so you really wanna reach out to your primary care doctor or someone in the medical field to see if you would need um, to be tested. And once you've determined that your child's well enough to attend the practice, I think you wanna, typically at most organizations and sporting groups are doing some sort of pre-screening at arrival, either questions or temperatures or other things to kind of see that you're well when you do arrive. And there should be efforts if possible to wear masks, 
um, do social distancing during the practice, breaking up into pods in the practice so that there's less groups so that you can do contact tracing more easily, um, and, and all those different things. And hand sanitation um, is also very important. So a lot of those different measures are things that can be done um, to try to reduce the risk. Okay, I heard you mention wearing masks, and I know that this has been a little bit of um, a hot button issue for people. What does the science tell us about wearing masks during sports participation? Yeah, um, this is a <laughs> I just keep throwing you I know, hard you're giving me crazy ones here. These are, and these are all hot topics, and I think mm -hmm. the reason why a lot of these topics are so hot is we don't have a lot of great recent research because we're, we're going through a pandemic together. It's the first year that we're really going through this. And you know we never wore masks in sports before. So we, we have limited data to make these decisions on, but there is some data out there. Um, we know number one, without a doubt, wearing masks helps spread the, prevent the spread of COVID-19. So we can extrapolate that again, wearing masks in other settings outside of just work where we go or schools or other places that it does prevent the spread. But um, there is some data looking at, they've had people where they get on like bikes or treadmills, they wear masks, they measure their oxygen, CO2 or carbon dioxide levels to see if there's any alteration or, or risk to that. And really the data would show that in those controlled settings with a certain type of mask, and these are really controlled studies, that they, it seems to be quite safe. And I can speak also anecdotally as a coach and someone who's gone to the gym with wearing a mask, that it, and I've worn masks all day at work, that it does seem to be safe from an ox oxygen and ventilation standpoint. Where much people get a lot of, I think, concern is, is we don't know the risks of wearing a mask. We think it's to be safe from a breathing standpoint, but what about visual obstruction? So if you're a, a gymnast or a hockey player and the things to cover your eyes and you're about to go off a vault or go near the boards and ice, that could be a potential risk, not proven, but theoretical. Um, what's the safety when your mask becomes soiled from sweat? Um, what is the risk of facial injury where somebody grabs your mask and rakes it across your face and it pulls on your ear? Those are, I think, are things that are theoretical. I haven't heard of those encounters, but I think we're also, this is like everything, it's a balance. You know, the benefits of wearing a mask to help prevent the COVID-19 so that you can participate versus the risk of not wearing a mask or, and then not maybe potentially being suffering these theoretical injuries. So a lot is still ongoing for research efforts, but I think the general message is that we know that they help prevent spread and they're likely safe for our, for our children. Perfect. So I think you've kind of answered this, but I, I still, I still want to ask it um, explicitly. What are you, what are you telling your families, your patients, um, other, other parents like myself, how to, how to weigh the risks and benefits? Because there's clear benefits, right, to sports participation, but there are risks, right? And it's not without risk. So what do you tell them to help out make those decisions? Yep. I, I think the very first thing that I want to start with is tell me about your family and the risk factors in your family. We know mm -hmm. that people with chronic lung disease, transplant, hematolot, or blood disorders, there are certain things that are out there that we know um, that are higher risk. And if you are a person in one of those settings, you really would have to, I think, be thinking very critically about the decision to allow either yourself, if you have those conditions, or a family member to participate in sports with those, just because of the increased risk of your potential exposure. However, I think if you're a healthy person um, with very low risk factors, there's never zero risk, um, but there's no other risk factors, then you'd have to look at what sport are you choosing to play? Or am I going in to do something like golf, where the risk is very low? Um, that's, that's a different story. Um, or what is the risk of that person not playing sports? If you know your child has a history of mental health issues and last time they missed sports for whatever reason in the spring or they've missed sports due to injury, they become very depressed or anxious or have other issues, then those are things where I think you really have to say for that individual, even though there's some risk of COVID, 
the benefits here in this individual would really outweigh it. And again, I can't say what the magic ratio is and the number of you know, checkboxes you need to check to prove it, but I think that it is an individual decision. And I, I know that for my own family, I've noticed that with my oldest son, who's very much you know, an active athlete, he hasn't been able to attend school, which has been challenging in many situations. And this has been a huge outlet for him. And I noticed that his sleep patterns have improved, his just demeanor and interacting with his siblings and us has improved. And overall, just his mental health and, and view on life has really been much more positive. And I think, again, it's not without zero risk, but you have to look at that individually for your, for your child and your family. Okay, that's very helpful. All right, let's transition to what what we need to know um, after a child has had a COVID nineteen infection. Um, what um, what are the risks of returning to sports after that, and um, what symptoms would families need to be watching for? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can speak to that a little bit, and mm-hmm. uh, I think in order to understand that question, that's a great question, and I think get asked a lot. Uh, in order to understand that, I think we have to understand the, the prevalence of the disease, the pattern of the disease uh, in children specifically. Um, so if you look at overall the different studies that are out there from both the U.S. Uh, and the other international experience, overall, the, the number of children who have severe disease from COVID-19 fortunately has been really low as compared to the adults. And uh, if you look at some of the numbers out there um, uh, in, in two of the studies from China as well as US and Italy, the, the number of individuals, children less than 18 years of age who had a severe COVID-19 infection was less than 5% and even less than two to 3% in those studies, which if you compare to adult uh, is anywhere from that 10, 15, 20% range in different studies. So overall, fortunately, um, a lot of the children who do have COVID-19 or, or contract this virus don't have significant uh, symptoms from it. So, in that order, the 90 to 95% of the children and adolescents that we will be talking about are in fact those who have are either asymptomatic or had a mild infection like any other viral infection and recovered really easily, nicely from it with no significant issues. And then on the other extreme is going to be that group of individuals who had severe disease. In order to make it easy what severe disease is, I'm just gonna make a boundary at hospitalization. And anybody who needed hospitalization for any form of respiratory support, any form of cardiac support, uh, that's where we, I think, will mark as a severe disease. Um, and, and that's a very small percentage of individual that's, that's out there. And then there is a gray zone in between. There's always a gray zone. And that's the 5 to 10% in between who uh, had some more symptoms, moderate type of disease patterns and, and slightly more symptoms that, than the general. Um, and, and so it's important to know what would be the risk in their case. With that, as I think as a preamble, uh, when we look at the cardiovascular problems in children, um, that is even rare. Uh, than the severe disease. Even in, among the individuals who have severe disease, the, the, the prevalence of cardiovascular problem is, is low. Uh, but the, the, the conditions that do arise are, are quite significant and the, th- the things that we worry about. So a few things that we have seen um, reported in children um, is, is myocarditis or cardiac injury, um, which can either lead to depressed cardiac function or certain times some arrhythmias. Um, similarly, we have seen arrhythmias as a primary um, 
component of the cardiovascular manifestations too. And then uh, there is a, even a very small uh, group of individuals who have a condition of multi-system inflammatory syndrome of childhood, MISC, who have uh, coronary artery problems where there is dilation of those coronary arteries. Um, so when we think about the signs and symptoms that you have to be aware of from cardiovascular perspective, those are the three conditions that I'm looking for. And uh, the, the things that um, I would be interested in knowing uh, would make me think about doing more further workup would be symptoms like an atypical chest pain uh, with the activity, with exercise. Um, the most common cause of chest pain is just a benign chest wall pain in most of the individuals. But if there's any atypical features to that, I think that would make you worried. Um, other things would be uh, a significant episode of dizziness with activity, uh, passing out with activity uh, that make you think about arrhythmias, uh, palpitations with exercise or significant palpitations, even at baseline uh, during the illness or after the illness would be something that would warrant further evaluation in, in, in group of individuals. So those are certain things that I would be uh, looking for or asking uh, children who do come in uh, to see us in cardiology. Okay. Do some, are some children um, at higher risk for complications following uh, COVID-19 infection and return to sports, like some certain pre-existing conditions? And my other question is, does the severity of their COVID infection symptoms predict likelihood of higher risk of kind of late complications that you just described? Mm -hmm. A great question. Uh, and again, it's, it's something that we don't have enough data to, to, to suggest the late complications in children. We, we've only through this for, for about a year, which is again, a year, but we don't have enough data to suggest any of the late complications and to predict that. But uh, theoretically, if uh, individuals who had severe disease or critical disease or those who had MISC, uh, there is a like there's a higher risk for cardiovascular problems in that group of individuals, and that's why we we end up doing more evaluation and more follow up in in this uh, small percentage of children um, as compared to the the ones who don't have as severe uh, of an infection. Um, so 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 the, so again, I think it's it it just depends on um, uh, the the how the presentation was, and even among individuals who presented with severe disease, there's a higher uh, prevalence of those who didn't have any cardiovascular problems. Okay. What about the pre-existing conditions like mm -hmm. kids with congenital heart disease, um, mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. children that you take care of? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So that's, that's again, another really great question. Mm -hmm. uh, so although we do think that certain congenital heart defects or certain conditions might put you at a higher risk for infection, Anecdotally, we haven't really seen that in our population. And um, uh, individuals, children who have congenital heart disease um, have actually gone through the illness in a similar fashion that we've seen in, uh, in, nor in otherwise normal hearts uh, and kids who have no, no, no pre-existing conditions. Although again, I have, to, I have to say that it depends on the type of congenital heart defect and it depends on the age as well. Um, so we know that uh, uh, younger children and with younger, I would say infants, less than one year of age who have congenital heart disease have had a higher risk for, for complications from cardiovascular standpoint. Uh, but otherwise, as the cardiovascular condition uh, or the congenital heart disease is, is, is well balanced, um, is uh, repaired, and there is no underlying significant cardiac dysfunction or arrhythmia burden, 
they, there hasn't really been any significant problems in that group of individuals. But again, I think as, as I drew the line that there is 90% of individuals who will do perfectly fine, but then there is that five to 10% who may have slightly higher problems. And again, that group is going to be those who have a significant congenital heart defect that is unrepaired, uh, who have cyanotic congenital heart diseases, uh, pulmonary hypertension, and uh, then certain conditions in which there is depressed cardiac function in certain forms of cardiomyopathy, as well as those who have arrhythmias, uh, as well as long QT. So there are that group of individuals where we do see and do envision that there could be slightly higher risk. So we want to be slightly more careful as compared to the normal group of individuals. Um, now, in addition to cardiovascular, uh, the other conditions, pre-existing conditions that are significant is a significant asthma at baseline. And I think that would, uh, pose you at a high risk for asthma exacerbation as in any other viral infection and viral illness. Um, um, significant obesity uh, has been shown in certain studies uh, where they looked at individuals who were hospitalized, uh, a, a larger proportion of those individuals were, uh, were significant with significant obesity. So that is definitely a risk factor um, for going into um, COVID-19 as well. Do, do all kids need special monitoring before they can return to sports participation? Um, and, and what does that look like? I know you guys have been really involved in creating these return to play guidelines. I'll let Dr. Niaz give his opinion. I've got one, but I, I'm curious to hear what he has to say first. <laughs> uh, so I think the reason why I gave the whole preamble of the, the, the significant number of children that we are seeing are asymptomatic mild infection with no concerns. And then there's a small percentage of individuals who do have significant disease. I think that I wanna continue with that because um, the, the, the risk for any cardiovascular problems is significantly low if you are in that 90, 95% group where you have either asymptomatic infection or a very mild viral illness. And um, in that group of, 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 um, of children, adolescents, um, I personally don't think that we need significant evaluation. Now, keeping in mind, the asterisk goes up there and, and the keeping in mind that there, it, it, there should not be any significant cardiovascular symptoms. Uh, like we talked about, chest pain, which is atypical, syncopal episodes, palpitation, significant dizziness, or, or symptoms like that. As long as we don't have any of those symptoms, uh, the likelihood of any cardiovascular problems or needing further evaluation in, in that group uh, is is very low. Is is I, I would not generally uh, uh, consider that. Now, then we go to the other extreme of the the severe disease and those who had MISC. Absolutely, we need to have a full evaluation for for those with severe disease and MISC. No brainer uh, with. ECG, uh, some uh, blood tests like troponin and an echocardiogram as well. And, and then we come to the, the gray zone that's in between where, um, where there has been a lot of um, different thoughts, a lot of controversy as well, and, and what should we do and what should we not do. And in order to understand that, I'm going to give another preamble. I know I'm, uh, I'm adding a lot, of, uh, lot, a lot of things in there. Uh, for us to do a screening test, uh, we, we need to understand what does a screening test really mean. Uh, we can do ECG, echocardiogram, even MRI uh, in every individual, but would that be beneficial or would that be harmful? And whenever we consider any test as a screening test, we have to keep in mind that there will be a group of individuals 
who will have false positive and we end up doing further evaluation that ends up being nothing. Similarly, there will be uh, a slight percentage of individuals who are children and adolescents who will have a disease and will be false negative out of that test. So when we are instituting a screening test, we want to make sure we don't miss anyone who had a cardiac problem, but keeping in mind that that is at the expense of a very high percentage of kids who will have a false positive test too. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go through that route of further evaluation, which may be redundant. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so with that, I think it is important to understand uh, if we have a higher likelihood for the test to be positive uh, in, in a certain group of patient, that's actually the, the, the population we should be instituting the screening for. And if we don't have a higher likelihood of the test to be positive, that's a group where we should not do further testing unless and until there is a clinical concern. Um, so, so that's what we have, we have thought about that in, in this group of uh, the five to 10%, which is gray zone, where they had some more symptoms, let's call them moderate symptoms. And, and we've called the moderate symptoms as a fever lasting for a longer period of time, four days or longer. Uh, those who had longer duration of symptoms, more than 10 to 14 days than the typical illness. Um, and this does not include the loss of taste and loss of smell that, that can go on for a very long time, as we know from all these different studies, palpitations and, and syncopal episode. Now, that's a group of individuals that I think it's important to screen them further with either starting with an ECG and then an echocardiogram, depending on what the ECG results are. Um, and um, um, results are, and, and I think again, that's something that you can you can gradatively say that if you have more symptoms, you might be thinking about more of those tests. Um, and uh, I know, Dr. Soma, I'll have you comment on that as well. Uh, we, we did draw a line based on uh, how how much of a what type of sports are you going to be participating mm. in? Mm. Is it going to be a high intensity sports where we have a higher likelihood of having a problem as compared to someone who is not in as high uh, intensity sports? And and that may actually play a role too. Now, so those individuals who had moderate symptoms and are in a higher intensity sports. Um, and in, in our guidelines that we're working on, we, we, we put a cutoff of 15 years of age and higher. Um, in that, I think it is reasonable to obtain an ECG, uh, obtain a troponin and an echocardiogram. And if any of those are, if all of them are normal, return to sports. If any of them is abnormal, then I think a referral to cardiology and then further evaluation based on what they're doing. Yeah, I'll echo a couple of things that Dr. Nia said, but basically I break it up into two categories. There's those kids who had the disease and you're trying to determine who is most likely to go on and get complications when they return. And I think Dr. Niaz stated it pretty eloquently. Severities absolutely needs to be looked at. Moderate, probably, but those who are mild probably not, need less of an evaluation. But once you, for everybody, I don't care if you're mild, moderate, severe, as you go back, you got to keep in a magnifying glass on those kids and determine do they develop any cardiac symptoms as they return? So even if you're mild, if you tell me that you're a kid who's played sports your whole life and you've never developed chest pain, shortness of breath, you know, feeling like you're going to pass out and now you're getting that with exercise, mm -hmm. we need to see you. Yep. And so I really think that we need to target that, you know, those kids and saying that, you know, no matter what your story was with your COVID, mm -hmm. if you start going to sports and you develop any of these symptoms, I want to see you. And then that's where the return to play is important because mm -hmm. 
if you just go day 10, I'm feeling I've passed my quarantine. I'm going to go right back into a high intensity, aerobic, <laughs> intense sport. We don't have that time to watch to see if those symptoms are going to develop. And you're not going to come out of the fourth quarter of a basketball game saying, coach, I'm feeling a little pain in my chest. You got to pull me. No, they're going to keep on going. So we want to be able to do this in a gradual manner so that we can really see how the kids are doing. And so what I would say is that, you know, everyone needs to serve their necessary isolation period, 10 days, you know, without antipyretics after the onset of the illness or onset of the positive test. And then at the end of that, you need to gradually work up your exercise under some sort of education to look for those symptoms. And if they develop, then seek medical attention. If you're going back to golf or bowling, it's hard to really ramp up into those sports because the intensity is not the same. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to ramp up in three days and knowing that the risk of developing a cardiac you know, problem or heart problem during exercise is pretty low. But if you're going back into football or basketball sports with more intense exercise where we know that there's more potential for cardiac problems when you return, if you develop, if you have an underlying cardiac issue, then those are ones you want to be a little bit more slow and intentional and have definitely that observation of those symptoms. And I think that's kind of really where the role of the return to play falls is that not we can't 100% predict mm -hmm based off of what your symptoms were with COVID, how likely you are going to develop that myocarditis. And, and I have, can anecdotally say that I've had a couple patients where we've worked up, worked them up for potential like myocarditis or other complications, and not everyone fits the perfect story. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So who's going to be in charge of that, like, gradual return to play? Is that, is that, is it on the parents? Is it on the trainers? Is it on the coaches? Or is it a combination? I think it's a combination. I mean, most high schools, not all, um, some more rural places don't have as much resource, but um, most high schools would have some sort of athletic um, trainer or nurse at the school or someone that could potentially help guide them through that. But for most youth sports in America, those things aren't available. And so I think it's just more a matter of education. Um, and we know, as Dr. Nia said, that if you're under the age of 15, we're typically treating those kids a little differently. And that encompasses most of our youth sports. Mm -hmm. So probably, you know, if we don't get quite that medical supervision that we get with the holder athletes is probably probably okay we're still learning so you know when i'm you know if you're coming back from it if you're a coach and you have some medical background that's great if you if you have some um, education that we can provide to our families like looks like we're talking about right now these venues are really important so that when jimmy johnny susie whomever comes home from their um, basketball game and say mom my chest was hurting when i was exercising that might be a clue um, and i would also add a lot of people have asymptomatic covid so anybody, even if you didn't have COVID, if mm -hmm. you start developing those symptoms when you go back to sports, please mm -hmm. talk to your kids about it. Go to your primary care doctor. Let them decide really what is needed. And again, they might refer you on to cardiology or sports medicine. Absolutely. I echo that. I think that's that's the key key point is if you're because we still don't know too much about this and and we're still in the process of learning. So any of those atypical symptoms, I think that need to be reported and should be evaluated by the primary care provider. Excellent. That sounds great. Now, are there actual like um, guidelines return to play like we have for concussion protocols? Or is it kind of more uh, subjective sort of process at this point? Yeah, every every state and every school district and every high school is hand handling it a little differently. Mm -hmm. I know most about Minnesota because that's where most of the patients that I care for are from, and that's kind of where my most of my knowledge falls. Uh, the Minnesota State High School League and many high school leagues across the country have outlined some 
form of return to play. Um, but again, this is based off of kind of expert opinion um, of kind of what we would do. And so I think just generally, you know, if you say that over the course of, you know, three to five days, you're going to go from doing nothing and gradually work up to full intensity, full on everything and doing that in some sort of a sequential manner, that's probably as good as we're going to get at this point. But there are some guidelines out there. Um, I would say reach out to your local, you know, high school league or sports departments and they might have resources for you. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all the time we have. Do you guys have any closing thoughts that you want to share with families as they kind of weigh these decisions and watch their children after they return to play? I want to say sports are awesome. <laughs> COVID and sports is something we need to be still learning about and each mm -hmm. person needs to make their own decision. Um, but if you ever have questions as a parent, reach out to sports medicine, cardiology, uh, your primary care provider, find someone with some knowledge and ask those questions um, because your questions can spur on other great thoughts or research or efforts. So um, we have a lot to learn. Absolutely. And I think, again, uh, the, the role that we as a provider, so what, what I want to tell every parent is that we as providers are out there to answer all those questions. We know how uncertain everything is in this time frame, and we are constantly analyzing every new information that comes out, and we are looking at all that. And that's the reason for that is for our patients, for our children, so they can return to sports safely and, and soundly. And I think that's all the goal. That's a goal of every provider at this time frame right now. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have. Um, thank you, Dr. Soma and Dr. Niaz, for joining us. This was fantastic. Thank our you. Pleasure. It was yeah. it was a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Remember to be safe and get your COVID vaccine when it's available to you. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.